Well, we've got to hear these great testimonies of how God has sustained, and we're going to turn now to a testimony of how God shaped, really how He shapes all of us, but how He shapes particularly Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and following. So I said last week that the genealogy was like a uh, drum roll that ends in a cymbal crash, that's Jesus, and now we slow down the pace and we begin to hear largely from Joseph's perspective, about the birth of Jesus Christ. So let me read that to you now from uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord God, uh, last night you blew your wind through Louisville with great force. And as I was awoken by this wind, I kept thinking about John 3, which promises that this is the way the Spirit works. We can't see the wind. We can't see the Spirit, but we can see His work. We pray, Lord God, that You would blow through here by Your Word with great effect and power, sweeping us to greater Christ-likeness. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Uh, There is a meme out there, or a picture, uh, that you can Google and probably find. Sometimes you may see it on a Christian t-shirt. If you own this t-shirt, I'm sorry. Um, Not sorry. Anyway, uh, there's this picture, and in the picture, you have this massive image of Goliath. And Goliath is standing there lording all of his hulking giant power over little David. And in this particular picture, you've got big old Goliath and little old David with his slingshot getting ready to take the giant out. And just underneath David, there's an arrow that says, not you. In other words, in this story, you are not David. And this remarkable little picture actually contains a tremendous amount of theology. Some nerd thought a lot about this before they got to this picture. Essentially, the point the picture is trying to make is is trying to say, listen, when you read about David and Goliath, 
You don't just want to be thinking, I want to be just like David. I want to throw rocks at giants and knock them down. You want to be thinking that David's a picture of Jesus who conquers our enemies. And that's why the little arrow says, hey David, it's not you. It's not you. It's really encouraging us not to read the Bible with ourselves at the center of every story. Or as one person put it, you're so vain, you probably think this psalm is about you. (laughs) We want to learn how to read the Bible in a way that we understand how all of the heroes of the Bible point us to Jesus and not to themselves. We want to read the Bible the way Jesus taught us to read the Bible in Luke chapter 24 when He told us that all of the Scriptures pointed to Him. Now, I imagine I'm preaching to the audience, the choir right here. Amen, brother. Christ-centered preaching. We want Jesus in all of it. And I'm here to tell you, I hate that t-shirt. I hate it. I get the point. David is a picture of Jesus. All the heroes of the Bible ultimately point to Jesus. But the last thing you want to say to a little boy who thinks he's going to take out giants is, not you. You see, what it misses when we do that is it misses the fact that Scriptures love to not only point us to the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, in all their promises and all their heroes, They always point beyond themselves to Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. That's a good point. I agree with that. Amen. But what that can miss is the Bible loves to give us good examples of faithful people who've walked with God. And I was talking about this with some brothers earlier this week, and we were saying, you know, it's interesting if you preach the Bible one way, just as sort of moral stories. Hey, David was good. You should be good. Oh, there's Noah getting drunk. That's bad. You should not be like Noah. If every Sunday all you get is a little moral story about how this guy was good, this guy was bad, you should be good, you shouldn't be bad, that kind of moralistic preaching will drive you to despair. But if all you get is Christ-centered preaching that's all about Jesus and what He does, and you never get any examples of how fallen people actually follow Him, that would drive you to despair too. We need the examples of Scripture. And I'm mentioning all of this because here we are, we're coming to a passage where there's amazing theology. We could just do two whole sermons on one on the name of Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. He is Emmanuel. God with us. There's just so much there. And we'll actually get to that next week. But what I want to do this week is I want to focus on the example of Joseph. I just want to look at this guy. His example. And I'm anticipating that someone might leave this sermon and go, now that that was good. Not as Christ-centered as it could have been. And I just want to say to you, don't be more Christ-centered than the Bible, please. Because the Bible loves to give us examples. Think about this. When James is talking to the people he's speaking to in the book of James, he says, consider the prophets, brothers. They are examples of patience to us. Or 
when it speaks to the Corinthians about pursuing idolatry and sexual immorality and fornication. It says, remember how God destroyed the Israelites in the wilderness? It says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened as an example for us on whom the end of the ages have fallen. And so I just want to say to you, we should cherish the examples of Scripture. It's true that ultimately only Jesus defeats the giant of sin and death. Only Jesus does that. It's also true that every Christian should want to pick up a little gospel rock and throw it at the head of everything that stands against God. And they should trust Him that He's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all the ask we ask or imagine with that little gospel rock that we throw. And so I want to look this morning at the example of Joseph. I want to look at the example of his life. I want you to notice the details of what he did. And what I want to show you by the end of this message is that the character Joseph had, formed by Christ, the character Joseph had was critical to the advancement of God's kingdom. First thing I want you to notice is Joseph was a just man. You see that there in verse 19? And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph was in a situation that would make your mind scramble for what to do. He was betrothed to Mary. When you read betrothed, don't insert engaged. Betrothed was way stronger than engaged. When you were betrothed, you were basically you were as good as married to the person who you were betrothed to. If you'll notice, it says here that it refers to Joseph as the husband of Mary. Once you were betrothed, you were husband and wife, though you hadn't come together in sexual union. If, the, if one of the spouses died after betrothal and before the actual wedding night, that's, the other spouse was regarded as a widow. If one of the spouses split off before the wedding night, well, we saw right here in this passage, it's regarded as a divorce. So Joseph is in a situation where he's betrothed to Mary, who for all intents and purposes looked to be like she was an incredibly godly woman. I mean, this girl bled Bible. Go read Luke chapter 1. She could quote Scripture with the best of them. She'd be, she'd be like, fighter verses. I eat Old Testament for breakfast. I mean, just, she, just, she, she knew the Bible. And so there was no reason to be worried about Mary's shady character. But here in front of Joseph was well, evidence you couldn't deny. She was pregnant. And he hadn't been with her. So as far as human reason would go, someone else had. And what's amazing is that Joseph is faced with one other circumstance. Not only is Mary with child, but the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy and Leviticus 20 verse 10, commanded that adultery be met with stoning, with death. There was a death penalty on those who committed adultery. Now that was generally not practiced in the days that Joseph uh, was around, but there was still a cultural expectation that you divorce her. And what's remarkable is that Joseph 
decides the most important thing for him to do is what's right in the eyes of God's law. Which makes him a rare breed. How many of us, in all the different circumstances of life, can say that the main question we're asking in all the different circumstances we face is, what would please God here? What would be obedient? We're like, what would work? What would get me out of a pickle? What would make this easier? What would relieve some pressure? The kind of man Joseph was was the kind of person who's primarily just. He's primarily righteous. Pastor Ramney shared a few weeks ago that he's seeing many people, and I've seen this too, people leaving the faith. And why are they leaving the faith? Because they're asking the question, why doesn't Christianity work? Instead of the question, is it true? And I would just on another realm, I would say this. People are asking, what, what's my path through life? And they're asking, what can I do that will work? Not what can I do that's right. Would anyone ever describe you like that? That's a just person. That's a righteous person. That's a person who's not governed by the circumstances they're in, but they're governed by a standard they're under. Now, when we say Joseph was a just man, we don't mean Joseph was some man who'd earned his way to heaven. He was so good. No, he was a believer in God. He believed in God. We're going to see in a minute that he was a merciful man, deeply shaped by God's mercy. But before we see this, we need to understand that Joseph was unlike well, any human being naturally born. He is someone who'd come to the conviction that the most important thing in life was to obey God and obey God's Word. You know, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone, according to Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31, who's had God's law put in their heart. They actually have God's standards put in their heart so they're not just being forced to do something from the outside like, i got to do it, I'm a Christian. But they've had God's law put in their heart so they want to do it. They're a Christian. And in a world that's constantly uh, putting people in front of us who should be esteemed because they're rich or esteemed because they're successful or esteemed because they're influential, the church needs to be a place that esteems people because they're obedient. And obedient to God's Word. And that's what we see in Joseph. He was a just man. The next thing we see is that he was a merciful man. Justice would compel him to divorce Mary. That would be the right thing to do. And he's resolved to do it. But notice the spirit with which Joseph focuses on this difficult point of obedience. It says this, he's unwilling to put her to shame. Very often, you get people who are committed to God's Word. Yeah, I want to do what God says. I want to be righteous like God. And then anyone who's not as righteous as them gets their blast. They get shame. You've probably done this to the people you love. You see them not living up to the standards you see in Scripture. And when you see that, you tear a strip off them. Mock them, maybe. Shame them. Joseph recognizes he must divorce her to be right. But whatever he can do to mitigate the pain, 
Whatever He can do to care for this woman, He wants to do. You see, Joseph has realized what the Pharisees that we're going to encounter multiple times through Matthew's Gospel, he's, he's realized what the Pharisees that we are going to read about in Matthew's Gospel didn't realize. That in addition to there being a deep strand of justice in God's law, there's also a deep strand of mercy. In Matthew 23.23, Jesus addresses people who are so persnickety, they tithe their spice cabinet. They tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin, it says. And He says, you ought to have done this, but you have forgotten what He calls the weightier things of God's law. Namely, justice and faithfulness and mercy. Twice in Matthew, we're going to read Jesus say these words, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. If you've got a heart for justice that's merciless, it's not the heart of God that's been formed in you. Satan is very willing to condemn people mercilessly. The Pharisee spirit is very willing to condemn people mercilessly. Joseph moves into the situation and goes, okay, there's some things that have got to be done. She has sinned as far as I can tell. I can't marry her. There's a right thing to do. I'm resolved to do it. How can I do it in a way that cares for her as much as I possibly can and decreases whatever grief is going to come into her life? If there's anyone in your life you correct on a regular basis, a kid, a spouse, a friend, you might want to ask them, do you sense that spirit in me? That when I go to correct you regarding what's right or wrong, there's all this, this heart to preserve you, care for you, not shame you, esteem you. That's a godly heart. That's what we see in Joseph. He's not only a just man and a merciful man, he's a considerate man. And when I say he's considerate, I don't mean he always says please and thank you and opens the car doors for ladies. And we hope he would do that too. But I don't exactly mean that when I say he's considerate. I mean he's deeply thoughtful about the path of obedience. Do you see that in the passage there? And her husband Joseph, being a just man, verse 19, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, but as he considered these things. I love, notice that. He's already made his resolution about what he's going to do, but he's still thinking about it. He's still laying in bed, considering what the best course of action is. Now, we would come along in our day and say, well, that's not manly. That manhood is decisive and bold. Oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe you're wrong. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe biblical obedience resolves to do what's right, but then is also laying in bed. What? Am I on the right track? Have I thought through this carefully? Uh, this word consider literally has this idea of, of gathering up all the information and pondering carefully what the right course of action ought to be. I think one of the biggest faults I have in my life is I think I understand situations quickly. I move in, I look, and my take must be immediately right. What else could there to be, be, to be learned? And those in my life would tell you, well, there's a couple of things we'd like to share with you. 
Joseph is thinking through what the considerate path is with Mary. What do you do when you've got a hard decision to make? What do you value? Do you value speed? Do you value decisiveness? Do you value resolve? Or do you value a thoughtful, biblical obedience? Uh, Christy and I faced a hard decision earlier this week and we were facing some difficult things and trying to think about how they ought to be handled. And I, I was led just to read through Proverbs 2 multiple times. And it, it just reminded me of what it really looks like to process life biblically. What it ought to look like when we're thinking through what to do in a particular situation. I want to read Proverbs 2 to you, and I want to encourage you just to maybe take whatever that situation is in your life. We've all got one, right? If anyone walked up, how are you doing this morning? There's that one situation we all got. We're thinking through what to do, what to do, what to do. What, what should I do here? And I want to ask you, is, is, is Proverbs 2 and the kind of consideration we see in Proverbs 2 shaping the way you process what to do in life? This is wisdom. Father Wisdom here speaking. A wise father speaking. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Now think about that. When was the last time you raised your voice? Not to condemn anyone, but to ask God for wisdom. Or when was the last time you were just as hungry for wisdom as you are to see your bank account in a more stable place? If you seek for wisdom like silver, don't over-spiritualize silver. We're talking about money. If you seek wisdom the way you seek money, you'll get wisdom. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Then, then if you seek wisdom, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path. I want to know how to make it through life. Here's how. Go to God. Every Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, I'm a fool. Give me wisdom. And He'll give it to you. And you'll know of all the different paths in life which one ought to be pursued as He gives you wisdom from His Word. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil from men of perverted speech. All the guys who want to pervert your thoughts, you'll be protected from them if you call it to me for wisdom. Who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. How am I going to avoid all the sexual immorality in this culture? Call out for wisdom. Verse 16, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. 
for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Joseph was a just man. He was a merciful man. And he was a thoughtful man who didn't rush off to do what seemed right. And I got a divorce her. Boom! No, sleep on it. Have a sleepless night. You'll be okay. And think carefully about what you ought to do. And isn't it amazing? That's where God meets him through his word, this time delivered through the mouth of an angel. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Well, that probably brings me to my fourth point. Joseph was a weak man. He was a weak man. Notice what the angel had to say first. Don't be afraid. Joseph knew that he was already in a bad situation. There would be only one thing that would make his situation worse for him, right? Actually marrying her. Now it's not just that she got herself in trouble, and what can he do to sort of mitigate the damage to her? But now he's going to be her husband. All the shame on her winds up on him. Maybe uh, something happened before the wedding night. Maybe, maybe your early wedding day, Joseph, is you admitting to what really went on. Or maybe for the rest of his life, uh, he's got guys walking up to him and saying, oh, yeah, she looks, child sure favors his mother, doesn't she? Don't see a lot of you in there. Joseph. To marry Mary was going to mean that Joseph wound up embracing the scandal of Christ and the scandal of the cross. And he's going to make his life harder. And what I love is the way the angel ministers to Joseph. Fear not. goes right to the heart. I know you're a man who once you decide what's right, you'll do it. But here's the thing we've got to overcome. Your fear. Fear not. And then he says this, God's in it. God's in it. This child, the angel says, is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. We'll tackle that next week. We won't fully understand it, but we'll do it next week. And then he says, she will bear a son and you shall, name his, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What moves a Christian from fear to faith? What moves a Christian from I'm too scared to move forward to I'm willing to move forward even though it's going to make life harder? It's the assurance that what they're doing is God's will. What will make it so that you can stand against family who won't go the right way, stand against classmates who won't go away the right way, stand against colleagues who are part of a wicked and perverse generation? What helps a person stand? 
It's not a confidence that they're a little cut above the rest. That you're a moral person, an immoral generation. No, no. What, what keeps us overcoming fear and walking in faith is the confidence that what we're doing is according to God's Word. That it's something He has commanded. The reason many of you and the reason many of us fall when we should stand the reason we uh, slide back when we should walk forward is because we've never taken the time to study the Bible for ourselves to know what God actually wants of us in a particular situation. So it just takes a little outside pressure to throw us off. But the more we take in God's Word personally, in the congregation, the more we understand what God wants, the more there's an ability, even when we're in the crowd, even when they're pressing in on us and pressuring us in all kinds of delightful ways, there's a ballast. There's an anchor that keeps you walking on what the Bible just frankly calls the straight and the narrow. Joseph was a weak man, but he overcame fear with faith in God's Word. Fifth, he was an obedient man. He was an obedient man. Now, now check this out. Check out how different this is. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, don't fear. Take Mary as your wife. That which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And give him this particular name. It's a glorious name. The name is Jesus. And that name means He will save His people from their sins. Then Matthew quotes a prophecy from Isaiah to let us know this is super biblical. And then let's look at Joseph's action. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. When Joseph woke from sleep, he called four friends and said, I'm just not sure. I heard from an angel. I'm kind of scared. No, he woke up, put on his shoes, sandals, whatever. And he walked out his obedience. He just did the right thing. Man, a lot of times we make the Christian life way more complicated than it is. There are certain commands in the Scriptures. They aren't going to get you to heaven. You're not going to obey them to get yourself to heaven. But Jesus who died for you commands you. And what are you going to do to grow in your Christian life? Do what He says. Wake up in the morning and do what He says. Talk about revolutionary Christianity. You can start tomorrow morning. In fact, I think you could probably start like, hey, at the end of the service, I'll do what He says. Right now, you could do what He says. And He does it very thoroughly. He actually even goes above and beyond the call of duty. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took God's commands and he did them. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, that, he wasn't actually commanded to do this, but it actually protects Mary from any accusation that this child is anything other than divinely conceived. And let's not have any idea that men can't ever control themselves. Joseph takes a woman on his wedding night and doesn't touch her for months. Brothers and sisters, the teaching of the Scripture is that we, should, if we're married, should regularly be giving ourselves to one another and not producing any obstacles to coming together. 
But the idea that we are justified in sexual immorality because we have no self-control is not the example of Scripture. It's not the example of Scripture. You can be with your bride on her wedding night. And Joseph's example is there's actually a higher priority here. I've got to keep the virgin birth untainted. And so he exercises self-control, which by the Spirit, every single one of us is capable of. He's obedient. You know, I was talking to uh, a new believer recently. And then actually this, this very same idea just came up in a conversation this morning. But I was talking to a new believer recently. And they've, they've got a particular point of obedience that they are just torn up about. Full of anxiety about it. it this particular thing is the one thing they do not want to do. And I was talking to them about this. and like, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed that God would help me to do it, but He's not giving me the power to do it. And I said to them, you know, the Scripture doesn't really want us to just pray and wait for that day when God makes everything easy for us. You're to pray and then wake up and put one foot in front of the other and the power will be provided when you move. And I love the story of the crossing of the Jordan. Not the crossing of the Red Sea. There's multiple crossings in the Old Testament. I'm not talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Jordan is so amazing because in the crossing of the Jordan, the priests are told to lead God's people to the Jordan and it tells them the water won't part till you put your foot in it. It's not like you arrive and the water's parted. I mean, if you're running from Egypt and the water's already parted, you're like, oh, I think I know what I'm supposed to do now. <laughs> but when they get to the Jordan, the water's just going like it's every day at the river. And you're like... Uh, don't you move this and then I go. No, you move and then I move that. And very often, Christians wait a lifetime for God to make them mount up on wings like eagles when it's a situation where they ought to walk. Where they ought to put one foot in front of the other and do the next thing. And power will be provided as you move. Power will be provided as you move. I love the old, I'm sure I've said it to you so many times, but the way Martin Lloyd-Jones ends the book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. Spiritual Martin Lloyd-Jones. How will he end this marvelous book on overcoming spiritual depression? He says, do not go on in prayer beseeching him for power. He says, do what he has called you to do. And the power will meet you there. The power often comes as we simply put one foot in front of the other. And Joseph's such a great example. And don't, don't you be thinking that he obeyed God because an angel appeared. There's plenty of people in the Bible who an angel appears and they don't do what God said. Zechariah, angel comes to him and says, hey, you're going to have a Sunday in John the Baptist. He's like, how am I going to know? What's the angel supposed to say? Uh, God will send an angel from heaven? <laughs> It's not the angel from heaven that moves Joseph to obey. It's the Holy Spirit of God just growing this just man, this merciful man, this considerate man, this weak man, and now this obedient man. Last point. 
He was a useful man. He's a useful man. Because obedience is what makes us useful. He's a useful man. I don't know if you caught it, but there's actually a problem at the end of the genealogy. R.T. France is helpful to point this out. So here's this genealogy. It's all about the son of David. It's all about the son of David. Only problem is, who's not related to, Jesus, to David's descendant? Kind of gave it away there, didn't they? Jesus has no relationship to the, no, the newest descendant of the Davidic line. And if, G, if, if Joseph divorces Mary, Jesus is not in the Davidic line. If Joseph blasts off in a minute, what? She's pregnant? I'm out. Then all of a sudden, this genealogy fails right before it gets to the climax of Jesus. It's necessary that Joseph be obedient for God's will to be accomplished. If you're uncomfortable saying that kind of thing, your Calvinism took a bad turn somewhere. It's necessary for Joseph to be obedient in order for God's will to be accomplished. If Joseph says, I'm out, I'm divorcing her, that's it for me, I'm done, then Jesus is related to Mary, but not from the house of Joseph. And Joseph is the link to the Davidic line. And I think this is very much on the angel's mind. Look at this in verse 21. Notice how the angel speaks to Joseph. Joseph, son of David. And then notice how the story ends. Joseph calls his name Jesus. For a father to name a child was a mark of authority. It was a mark that this child was in his home. When he took Mary, he bonded himself to Mary. When he named Joseph, when he named Jesus, he essentially adopted Jesus fully into his family. Just a little note for those of you who are adopted. When Jesus was adopted by Joseph, was he mostly in Joseph's family? Or sort of the inheritor of the Davidic line? Or was he 100% the descendant of David and the heir to everything that this father that was not his biologically could give him? Everything. Jesus was Joseph's earthly son. And all the rights and privileges that came with the whole Davidic line that went through Joseph were being passed to Jesus, not through biology, but through adoption. Some of you may have desires at some point in your life to say, I want to meet my real parents. Now let me say this to you. You can meet your biological parents, and that may be very profitable in certain situations. You already know your real parents. You already know those who are your parents. You are linked to them in the most real and profound of ways. Joseph 
would not have accomplished this advance of the kingdom, this transfer of the kingdom from Joseph to Jesus doesn't happen unless Joseph is just, merciful, contemplative, willing to be made strong out of weakness, and obedient. And beloved, the same is true for you and I. The kingdom of God will not advance the way it ought to unless we are obedient. Now, here's a right turn for your Calvinism. If you don't advance God's kingdom, He will advance it some other way. Okay? It's not all hanging on you. Not like that. But the way God wants to work is to see His people obey and then to produce the fruit of an advanced kingdom through our Christ-inspired obedience. Through our Christ-empowered obedience. Let me just give you a few passages that say this so you don't think I'm just pulling this out of some narrative out of nowhere. Maybe you'll remember 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Some of you have got the Bible on your phones and you're like, I beat you there. But uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice what 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll start in verse 5, says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfast with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. In other words, he's saying, just keep growing. Keep adding all the Christian virtues in your life. You know some stuff, add self-control. You got self-control, make it steady. You're steady, be godly. You're godly, be loving. You're loving, Keep being loving. And then what he says in verse 8, and if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. What happens if you stop growing in the Christian life? Eh, You're faithful, but not steadfast. You're faithful some of the time. You will become ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. A pastors, there's a word here for us. Think about Paul's word to those who would be teachers in the church. Watch your life and your doctrine carefully. If you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And what happens if I don't watch my life? What happens if our pastors don't watch their doctrine? we wind up creating explosions in one more local church that sends many reeling and away from the faith. Our obedience matters to the advancement of the kingdom of God. One more verse and then I'm going to say a couple things and sit down. 2 Timothy says this very well. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, like cleanse himself from sin, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I want to be be used by God. I want to serve God and be used by Him. What do I do? Fleece Him. 
Flee sin. Gather up Christian character. You know, Joseph's life, uh, we're going to see a little bit more from it uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, but we know almost nothing about him. Many speculate he died early in Jesus' life. He's, he's not around long. He's not around later on in Jesus' life. But it's some key turning point moments in the advancement of God's kingdom. There was a man who was righteous. There was a man who was merciful. There was a man who was thoughtful and considerate. There was a man who had faith that would overcome fear. And there was an obedient man. And that man became useful for the advance of God's kingdom. Now you're not going to do that without Jesus defeating Goliath. You're not going to do that without Jesus having died on the cross for you. You're not going to do that without trusting Jesus to save you from your sins. You're not going to do that without Jesus giving you His Spirit. But as Jesus gives us His Spirit, we very much can walk in the example of Joseph. And it's glorious. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. We praise You for Your great grace. We pray that You would make us like Jesus and like all the exemplary followers of Him in the Scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.